Welcome to the Commons Cast. We're glad to have you here. We hope you find something meaningful in our teaching this week. Head to commons.church for more information. And thanks again for joining us today, which is actually the last day in our first year together here in Inglewood, which is pretty cool, right? It's interesting. A couple of weeks ago, someone in my life was talking about time passing, and they used this phrase that some of you might have seen on a Pinterest board or on a gift, co- uh, gift shop coaster set, and the phrase is just, the days are long, but the years are short, which is kind of how I feel about our journey here together, because... There's all kinds of work that goes into starting community. And as we've worked together, there have been some difficult, challenging moments in the past 12 months, but here we are, with so much to look ahead to in the days ahead, and it has to be said that we wouldn't be here, we wouldn't have gotten this far without so many of you and the ways that you care for commons. Pitching in 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 a myriad of ways, setting up, tearing down, helping with kids, welping, welcoming, welping, sure, we can say that. (laughs) Leading from the front here, praying for a community, caring for each other, sharing your resources, and it has meant so much to me to see your efforts make space for more people in our community. So thank you for that. Thanks for leaning in during lean moments of your story where work or family or anxiety might have made it tough for you to be involved here. And on a broader note, thank you, as Larissa made mention of, thank you for the ways that you helped to contribute to our Advent campaign this year. We're so excited about the ways that we've met that goal and how that extends the generosity of this season to so many projects locally here in Calgary. We celebrate that, obviously. And obviously, I want to make one last plug. If you're looking to make a contribution as you're thinking about year-end tax receipts, one more reminder that you can give to, until tomorrow, uh, until about midnight, if you'd like to. As always, there's no pressure in that, but we also want to invite people to um, sort of be involved with us as we look to end this year well and look ahead into the blessing of 2019 together as we grow as a community across the city. Now, today we actually find ourselves at an interesting place in the calendar because usually here at Commons we teach through a theme or a group of stories or a book in the scriptures, which is what we're going to be doing in the new year as we start a new series on friendship. We're going to be taking a significant look at this big part of our lives and trying to look at it from a couple of different and interesting angles. So join us for that if you can. But to the point, today we find ourselves in a bit of a pocket of sorts. We just finished Advent, where we looked at some sections of the Hebrew Bible that speak to Christ's birth in unexpected ways, thinking about the ways that darkness and longing and hope long in coming, these things are the soil of our faith, if we're honest. And each year, this season of Advent gives us space to acknowledge these things in our story and reflect on how the whole story of Jesus doesn't skip over the grit of our human experience. It actually joins with it. But now, we've actually entered into the Feast of Christmas, where between our celebration on the 25th and the Feast of Epiphany, which is actually next Sunday, Christians around the world mark the 12 days of Christmas with Christmastide, 
where interestingly, the 25th doesn't end the hoopla of the season, where we're just supposed to buckle down for the cold and calorie-burning weeks of January that are just ahead of us. No, instead, the lighting of the Christ candle on Christmas Eve, which is still lit here today, and the celebration of Christmas Day the next morning, those are the beginning of Christmas, where now we party. And even if we had to return to work or normal life, we choose to center our lives on the abundance and the joy and the goodness of God that are here with us in Christ. So, if you're looking for permission to just keep eating that Christmas baking, you're allowed. Take my word for it. Or if you felt like Christmas just came so fast and then it went by you without you noticing, I want to encourage you to take a morning or an evening or two this week and celebrate the things that you enjoy. And the peace that we live in here in this nation, and the stark beauty of new snow, even if it's blowing around, the many many ways that grace is present to you, because it's still Christmas, friends. Don't be stingy with your happiness, because life's going to get hard enough soon enough. And with that said, I'll note that this feast of Christmastide With it, the church celebrates some difficult stories, like the one about the holy innocence that we talked about last week, and the life of St. Stephen, which we released a video about, the church's first martyr, stories from Jesus' childhood, where we think about the implications of God clothed with skin, which is why today we're going to take a look at a story about Jesus and his parents in Jerusalem. But before we do that, let's take a moment, let's center our hearts and minds. Do that with me now. Gracious God, come near to us. You press up against our world with all of its furious living and our suffering and our fragility. And in this way you come, you invite us to trust you, not because of your power or your authority, your capacity to get things done, but because of your simplicity and your empathy and your quiet and humble way of living. And as we look at you and we sense your innocent gaze fall on us, we ask for strength to hold you well and for grace to carry you in all the ways we walk, sharing the warmth of your light and bearing witness to your truth, which never lords itself over others. And it doesn't clamor above the noise of politics and pursuit of gain, but you merely sit like a child resting in its mother's arms and you invite us to find peace and to be ourselves and to be found as those who are loved. And we celebrate now this hope that we carry, even if we're weak or we're tired or we're worn down today. Teach us to trust this hope. Today and in the year to come, we ask. Amen. All right, today we're going to talk through a little bit of learning how to live and years versus resolutions, losing and finding, and a little bit about growing up. And as we do that, let's jump right into the story today, which comes to us from the Gospel of Luke, where we read that every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of Passover. And when Jesus was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. And after the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. I love that, the boy Jesus. 
But they were unaware. His parents didn't realize that he'd done this. And thinking that he was in their company, they traveled for about a day. And then they started to look for him among their relatives and friends. And when they didn't find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him, obviously. And after three days, they found him in the temple court, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Now, there's a couple things to note here, which is interesting, given that this is a pretty familiar story for those of us who might have been around church for a while. And I'm not sure if what's notable is how Jesus' parents lost him. I mean, he's the son of God, for goodness sake. How are they not crazy helicopter parents, right? Or think about how Jesus talks back to his parents in the story. We're going to come to that in a bit. The point is that even stories like this that we've looked at before have the potential to stir our imaginations in new ways. And one of the things that might do that for us is this throwaway reference in the story to how every year Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem to attend the Passover festival, which seems superficial enough, right? I mean, we know that our Jewish friends and neighbors still mark the festivals referred to in the text. Darlene and I, actually, when we were first together, we lived in this basement apartment in Toronto. In the, it was owned, or the home was owned by a wonderful Jewish family. And I remember well, especially as we tried to go to sleep, the sounds of the family singing and partying and dancing well into the night during the Jewish holy days. And the point is that during the first century, the Jews would have come from all over the ancient world to Jerusalem for Passover. And those living nearby would join them in this remembrance of their deliverance from Egypt. And it may not seem significant to say that Mary and Joseph were good Jews and made their way south each year, unless we just think about that for a second. And we think about the rhythms of our childhood and how perhaps the repetitive devotion of Jesus' parents shaped this youthful boy. I mean, it's no mystery that habits and intentional traditions shaped you and me as we grew up. And you can probably think of examples from your story, especially having just come through Christmas, which is often when things like this produce or they crystallize in us, for better or worse, actually, because I don't want to presume that all of the repetition that you experienced was positive, but I do want to say that it's no mystery that the habits and the traditions of religious life we were exposed to as children, these things are important, even if we didn't experience any of them. Sociologists regularly find in research that simple acts of spiritual practice outside of liturgical space actually go a long ways towards shaping young hearts and minds for, with what it means to be faithful. Or another way to think about it is to say that the things we do every year, every week, every day, they matter, even if we don't want them to. And the idea of time passing in the text then, it looms large as we see that Jesus is taken to yet another Passover. But the idea of time passing is actually significant for us too as we sit on the cusp of 2019, where many of us might be reflecting and happily saying goodbye to the last year, or maybe we're a little bit uptight about what lies ahead of us. The point is that it's worth mentioning that in our culture where there's this push towards making new resolutions, which are a way of marking time if you think about it. From this point on, we determine to fill in the blank. 
And as I've never really been much of a resolution person, but I do love how social media gives me access to the funny ways that others engage this practice. And here's a couple of examples that I found from a couple years ago. The first one is this person who wrote that their New Year's resolution is simply to remember to write 2017 instead of 2016, right? Super doable, super realistic. Everybody can nail that. Or this person who wrote that their resolution was to try and worry less and then to fill that time with, oh God, what am I supposed to fill that time with? This is going terribly already. Okay, sounds familiar, maybe. And then there's this guy, he's my favorite, who says that I'd love to say new year, new me, but I'm only two stamps away from a free meal with my KFC loyalty card, which would be silly to ruin that now. And what's disturbing about that is I don't actually know if KFC loyalty cards are a thing. Either way, it's disturbing. The point isn't just that it's easy to poke fun at the ways that we determine to be different as the new year begins, only to discover that our good intentions are sometimes really hard to live into. Which for the record, if you're looking to be healthier and even more efficient and more energetic, I was reading this story in the Business Insider that basically said that we just, if we want, we need to fix our sleep habits and read more books in order to address our health challenges. So more naps and comic books for everybody, I guess is what that means. The, the point is, is that it's okay to be looking ahead and asking yourself what needs to change. That's fine. Or thinking about what needs to go in your life or what newness you need to make room and time for. These moments where we're keyed in to how time is passing, they're good because they cultivate self-awareness in us, which is always a doorway to transformation. But I wonder if this reference to every year practices in Jesus's family might not be helpful for us in this season of new year initiatives where instead of letting the encroaching year fill us with a not-so-subtle anxiety, or where we might be a little harsh in our self-critique and begin a long and exacting New Year list, maybe we make an every-year list instead. And this could take lots of forms. Maybe you start super general by saying that every year I want to make sure I learn to be more generous than the one before, or I want to know my neighbors better or I want to learn to cook a new particular cuisine, or I want to make at least this many trips to the mountains, or I want to read this many books, or I want to try a new prayer technique before the end of the year. I want to celebrate my own birthday well, whatever. The point, as I've thought about this contrast to resolution thinking, is I, I get this feeling of building my own life when I think about the things I do every year, as opposed to reacting to the faults and the gaps and the longings that I see in myself, where I start to see my life as a summary of the choices that I make to do things, certain things, every year, and to become in certain ways every year, to measure my living by the things I do give and say in 365 days, not just at the beginning of January. Because at least for me, there's something powerful that sparks in me when I think about the patterning of every year as opposed to fixing my life with a resolution or two, where I imagine that in looking back the little things that I choose to do every year will dwarf insignificance the way I fussed over my inconsistency. And they'll dwarf the things that I tried and then let go of before the end of February. 
And they'll dwarf the ways that I tried to make myself better only to find that other rhythms actually made more sense for me. So can I invite you to this practice? I think it's certainly worth a try this time around. Now, back to this story about Jesus for a second, because right after his parents find him in the temple, we learn that everyone sitting there listening was amazed by Jesus' understanding of the Hebrew scriptures and his curiosity as a 12-year-old and the answers that he was offering to the questions that were being given by the rabbis. Which, quick note, this scene was actually a normal social gathering. Young men and boys gathered around the temple all the time with the teachers of the law in this dynamic conversation about the law of Moses and how God's people could adhere to it better. And Jesus is not teaching the rabbis, which is sometimes how this passage gets read. Jesus is just learning and stretching. And I think the point of the text is the fact that he was an avid, if not advanced, student. Anyway, his parents are astonished at this. Less so with his intelligence, I think, and more with what he's doing. Because Jesus has this moment that many of us can relate to. He has a run-in with his mother, who marches up to him after looking for him, clearly upset, and she says, why have you done this to us? We've been looking for you. And here, the text and the story, they do something a little funny because Jesus flips this question on his mother and says, why are you looking for me? Like she's out of her mind. And then Jesus uses this cryptic phrase that scholars debate, largely because the statement itself isn't complete. Jesus turns to his mother and actually in the Greek, the Greek literally has a pause or a gap in it because Jesus asks, didn't you know that I had to be in or about, and then there's this blank, of my father? And it isn't entirely clear what Jesus means here. Was he saying that they should have expected him to be in the temple? Not unlike I expect to be my son to be playing PS4 when I can't find him? Or was he telling them that the stories of God's people are really important to him and that he would naturally be with the people who were discussing them? Or is something more symbolic being said by the gospel writer here? Maybe that Jesus was, as a boy, hinting that his purpose was to always be seeking out where the divine was working in the world. And these are all options that scholars propose. I'm not sure they need to be central for us here today because the more pressing thing for our reading of the story is that we learn that his parents did not understand what he was saying to them, which kind of makes sense. This is the crux of the story. See, as some commentators note, we have to be careful about how much we psychologize in our interpretation of the story. Or in other words, if we try to come up with clear and rational explanations for Mary and Joseph or Jesus' actions here, we're going to end up with more questions than answers. Like, for instance, how could Jesus' parents set out on more than a 100-kilometer journey without knowing where their son was? I mean, I don't walk out of Callaway Park without holding my kids' hands or at least seeing them, Right? Or where is it that the 12-year-old Jesus stayed for multiple nights in the largest city in the country? The point isn't the details. The point is that Jesus seems to be increasingly self-aware of his purpose in the world. And his parents don't understand him. 
And of course, the easy joke is that most 12-year-olds are confusing to their parents. Fair enough. But I think that there's more going on here for the ancient author because in this moment, Jesus is a mystifying presence in the life of those who know him the best. Those who are aware of his divine nature to some degree. I mean, Mary and Joseph are in on Jesus' classified file long before anybody else, according to the author. And yet, they are the ones who are caught off guard by how things are playing out. What's interesting is that as this story continues, the author notes how Jesus goes home with his parents after this story. He's a good kid. And then... It notes that his mother treasured all of these things, these stories, these things that have happened. She treasured them in her heart. She's a good mom, the text tells us. But more directly, this line about Jesus' mother is one that the Lucan author uses in a couple of places to reference how Mary held her son's journey with care. And how over time she reflected and made note of his development, she grew in her understanding of Jesus' mission and purpose, which we'll see in instances like in John's Gospel, where she's kind of the one responsible for encouraging Jesus to perform his first miracle, which was producing more wine for a raucous wedding party, or, or the fact that she's present in and around his closest followers as Jesus goes to his death. And perhaps the contrast in the story might be helpful for us, where in this particular instance, in the mix of losing and finding Jesus, Mary does not understand this key component of her life. But how in time, she seems to grow in her comprehension of what the divine was doing around her. And I think if we're honest, this is what our journey toward or with faith can look like where there are moments of discovery and awareness, but there are also moments of ambiguity and loss where we do not understand what's happening. For instance, maybe you experience loss, and then the theological answers that you've brought with you, they don't give you the same peace. They don't cut it anymore. Or maybe there's some chaos around you professionally, in a relationship with a partner or a friend, a child even. Maybe even in your own mind, there's a lack of peace. And like Mary, you find yourself asking, how could this happen? Or how could this be done to me? I don't understand. And those are the right questions. And for all the stock that we put into well-lived lives, we're right to point out that even the best of us loses and finds their faith at least a time or two. That's not a reason to feel disqualified or ashamed, just like it wasn't for Jesus' real-life parents. Instead, this story shows us that to feel lost and confused and overwhelmed doesn't mean that we've somehow missed something. No, it means that we're changing. And it encourages us to hold these moments close and take author Marilyn McIntyre's challenging advice to not just go on with life, but to go into it. To trust the Spirit's gentle and kind presence. Or if you can't trust it, then to just sit 
and to look internally, to pay attention and to feel and to grieve, to rejoice, to do soul work and let your soul rest when it needs to. Knowing that in time, the shifts you've made will be revealed and the ways that God has been at work in you will make themselves clear. So, that's pretty much what happens in this story. Jesus' parents take him on this trip, then they lose him or he ducks out on them, one or the other, and then they find him again and he says some cryptic stuff, not unlike he will later in his life, and then they all head home together and Mary starting to understand a little bit more of what this child of hers might be about. And much like earlier in chapter two of Luke, this, where there's this story about the young Jesus, the ancient author actually concludes this episode that we've just been in with this narrative line. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Which might seem like a nice tight summary, a quick transition sentence that launches us into the stories of his adulthood that are so important. But I think there's something worth noting here because we've just watched something significant happen in Jesus' story. Where before in the story, he's this helpless infant. He's voiceless and he's carried and moved along by those around him here in the story we've just looked at. Much like you and I do as we mature, Jesus becomes an actor in his own life. And I love how the ancient author shows us this only to then tag the story with this summary line. And with it, tag the implication that no one becomes the best version of themselves overnight, not even Jesus. See, the vocabulary here makes it clear that Jesus grew in wisdom, which is this word Sophia, which in the Jewish imagination wasn't just knowledge, but also the capacity for kindness and justice based on lived experience. And it tells us that he grew in favor, which is this word charis with God and man, the idea that over time Jesus actually experienced more and more connection with the divine, and that those around him started to appreciate and acknowledge him. That's great. But then there's this reference to how he grew in stature, literally, referring to how he grew up. His progression through the stages of life, which for some of us might be a particularly helpful image as we head into the new year. See, in this story we see Jesus sitting and learning with the teachers of the law, the same teachers who, once he's grown up, they're going to oppose him and they're going to accuse him And then we see Jesus amaze the gathered crowd with his curiosity and his questioning, the same features that one day crowds are going to admire only to confront and ridicule and ultimately reject Jesus for. Which is just to say that as Jesus changed, the world around him changed too. And as he grew and matured, things didn't always go smoothly. And I wonder if that's a reminder you need that Jesus had to grow into who he'd become and that this process took place in a largely normal life, in moments and years not unlike your story and mine. They're never written down anywhere. They're quickly and quietly summarized in a throwaway line by an ancient author. 
And I wonder if you look ahead to the coming year and you consider the need for shifts and year-end commitments, if you can find grace to give yourself the same kind of space that Jesus needed. Space to grow at the appropriate speed. And space to learn wisdom through the only way we can, which is through living. Or space to discover the favor that you already possess in unpursued dreams and new connections that are right near you or in God's faithful presence that's already with you in the future. Where you realize that if God's self needed time, that you're okay to take it to. And if God's great redemptive work in Jesus in the world, it started with a 12-year-old boy asking profound questions and then having to live into the answers, then you can do that too. And if God's own mother didn't know what to do when things weren't clear, then guess what? You're probably going to be okay. All this in the middle of an everyday life, year by year, where you and I discover to our amazement that we're growing and we're stretching and we're becoming just like Jesus did. Let's pray. Gracious God, you are present to us always, but I, I wonder if sometimes we feel it more especially in points of transition. In these moments where we have a sense of time passing and here we sit, we sit as a community sharing a transition moment, but we are all facing newness and fresh challenge. Many of us might be facing old enemies or old challenges too. And in this space, we're present to the mystery of your work in us where I ask that you would help us to trust your gentle, persistent invitation to us. And just as the story models for us this image of the divine, mysterious God-man learning to grow up, that we would sense in you and from you an invitation to take our time and to find that we are growing, that we are stretching, that regardless of the challenges and darkness and difficulty that lie right ahead of us, we know that you are at work. And that those things, that pressure we feel, that's not a sign that anything's wrong, but rather this presents an opportunity for us to grow personally, but then also in this thing we call our journey of faith. And so we ask for grace to hold this gently and as we head out of Christmas tide, look at Epiphany, the season of your announcement, your revelation to the world, would you give us joy as we share that with the world in a myriad of ways. We ask in the name of Christ. Amen.